listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. We're going to continue this morning our summer series on wisdom, wisdom uh, in Scripture. And so for a while we looked at wisdom in Proverbs This month, we've been looking at wisdom in the Psalms, but we're a good bit through the summer, and so maybe as we've been going through these series, you've had some occasions in your life where you've said, you know, what the Bible says is absolutely true and right, it is wise, and I've been trying to live a wise life, but you've noticed the world around us isn't wise. And so you've been trying to live with wisdom, but your circumstances are not cooperating. Have you been there? I've been there. Well, the psalm today, the psalmist is going to take us through Uh, an experience he had in his life where he experienced just that same thing. And here's what he's going to tell us. He's going to tell us it's all about perspective. It's all about your perspective. And so that's what I want to talk to you about this morning, perspective. So let's say I asked you before the service, hey, is White House House a big place? Most of you would probably be like, well, not really. I mean, kind of yes, kind of no. We know of bigger places. We know of smaller places. It's no Dallas. It's no Houston. Yet... Sometimes it feels like our little life here, our little world is big. We got a lot going on. We struggle to keep up. We see people all the time, even in a town like this, that we don't know. And so it can feel big at times. But what if I were to show you this picture? And now I were to ask you, hey, is White House big? So this is obviously the earth. And in comparison next to it's the moon that looks really small compared to the earth, right? And if we were to try to find White House... On this picture of the earth, y'all, we couldn't even see it. It's not even a speck. It's smaller than a speck. So I'll show you this picture and ask you, is White House big? You'd say no. But I'd say, if I asked you, is the earth big? You'd say, yeah. Man, the earth is big. I can't even comprehend how big the earth is. Well, what if I then showed you this picture? So in this picture, that big red object is the star. That next biggest object is another star. And that third biggest object is our sun. And y'all, in this picture, you know, there's some other planets, and it's hard to tell, but there to that little dot is the Earth. In this picture, y'all, the Earth is one pixel big. And so after I show you this picture, if I ask, okay, is the Earth big? You kind of need a follow-up question, right? Like, compared to what? Compared to whose perspective? Because compared to us, yes, it's big. Compared to this picture, no, it is not big at all. And so here's what the psalmist is going to tell us this morning. Here's the big idea of the psalm and the big idea of our sermon. You know what wise people do? The wise fight for perspective. The wise fight for perspective. And so the psalmist is going to tell us about a season in his life, y'all, when he was losing this fight. And here's what he's going to say. When I lost this fight, a thief came into my life. A thief came into my life and he stole from me. That thief's name is envy. He's going to say, it stole all of my joy, and y'all, it almost stole my faith. It almost stole the beliefs I hold dearest to myself. But you know what? When I won this fight for perspective, man, it was amazing. It was amazing. And we'll get there. For now, let's read Psalm 73. It says this, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure, pure in heart, But as for me, my foot had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. 
For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they had no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven, against the heavens, and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in a slippery in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment and swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and arrogant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. I love how this psalm starts. It's, it's a psalm of a fight for perspective, yes, but it starts in faith, in verse 1. It says, you know what? God is good to Israel. He's, it's almost like he knows, hey guys, it's going to get rocky. It's going to get to be a bumpy ride, and some of what I'm going to say I know is going to make you a little uncomfortable. You're going to think, man, is this guy, is he really a very good Christian? I don't know. Can you really ask these questions about God? And so he's saying, hey, it's going to have a good end. Just hang in there with me, okay? And then he talks about how big of a fight it is. He says, a foot had almost stumbled. I'd almost slipped. And the word picture there is, you know, you're kind of traversing a steep, rocky edge, and your foot slips, and if you fall, you're going to tumble all the way down to the bottom. And so he's saying, here's where I was. I almost lost it all almost lost all of my faith, almost tumbled all the way down. I found myself in a place where I was ready to throw it all away, to get rid of it all, to toss it, toss it out. That's where I was. He was slipping. And so this is, is going to be a picture, starting in verse 3, of what happens when we lose perspective and envy grows in our life. So this is the first point. This is what I want you to know. When you lose perspective, envy grows. Always, this is what happens when you lose perspective and envy grows. And so he says, you know, when I zoomed in on my life, all I could see was kind of my life, 
my circumstances and some circumstances of a few people around me, when I zoomed in on that, man, I lost perspective and I became envious. I envied the wicked. That's what happened to me. And so what does he see? When he zooms in his life, he zooms in on the circumstances around him. What does he see? Well, he sees a few things. First, he sees the wicked prospering. He notices, you know what? They're all good looking. In verse 4, he calls them fat and sleek. Now, apparently, y'all, back then, that was a good thing. I don't know. You need to know some things in the Bible, y'all, are cultural. Husbands, don't go home today. Tell your wife, you know what, baby? Looking pretty, pretty fat and sleek here. Don't tell them that. It's not the compliment now the way it used to be, okay? But back then, he's saying, man, they're all attractive. They're all beautiful. They got it going on. So they're good-looking, and they're wealthy. Verse 3, he says they prosper. And then in verse 12, he says, and it keeps getting worse. Their riches keep on increasing. They're getting wealthier and wealthier and wealthier, and then they're carefree about it. Verse 4, they have no pangs until death. They don't experience pain like I am. Verse 12, they're always at ease. And in verse 10, he says, and to make it all worse, y'all, they've got a good reputation for it. People find no fault in them. So he sees the wicked prospering, and then he notices they're arrogant about it. They're prideful about it. They brag about it. Verse 6, the picture is their, their pride is like a big, flashy necklace, like a big, flashy garment that they wear, walk around so that everyone can see. They want everyone to see how great they are and how arrogant they are. Verse 9, I love this word picture. He says their tongues strut. You know, they got this walk. I clearly don't have a strut. I don't have a walk. That's how their speech is, like a prideful man just strutting along. I'm a big deal. And then he compares it to his circumstances. So the wicked prosper, they boast about it, and then I suffer unjustly. He says, verse 14, I'm stricken, I'm rebuked. And he says this thing in verse 13, y'all, that I think, Many of us have said at some point in our life, he says, you know what? It is all in vain that I've tried so hard. It is all in vain that I've tried so hard to live a wise life, to live a righteous life. And what do I get for it? Nothing. They're prospering. They're boastful about it. and I'm suffering. And so verse 21, I think we can identify with him when he says, man, when I zoom in on my life and I see this and it's all I can see, I am embittered and pricked in heart. I think at this point, it's very easy to understand for all of us, y'all, what envy is. It's very important to understand what envy is for two reasons, because it's deceptive and it's deadly. It's deceptive in the sense that I think, you know, if I took a survey here, hey, do you struggle with envy? I think most people would tell me, you know what, Clint? Yeah, envy's a sin. I struggle with it sometimes. And it's not that I'm perfect. I certainly have plenty of sin in my life. You know, envy isn't really one of my big sins. There's other things that I struggle with way more than envy. But I'm here to tell you, envy is in each and every one of our hearts. Each and every one of us struggle with this on some level. And it's easy to think it's no big deal. It's easy to think all of us do it. It's no big deal. We keep going through life, but it's absolutely deadly. So let's talk about what envy is. Here's what envy is. Envy is wanting circumstances and resenting people. Envy is wanting circumstances and resenting people. So you want circumstances, you want good things, maybe you want different than what you have, but that's not all bad. We all do that. We all want good things, but we do it in a way that causes us to be filled with anger, resentment, bitterness toward the people that have those things, right? 
So this is what the psalm is saying. Not only do I have what I deserve, those people do have it. Man, and I'm bitter about it, and I'm angry about it. This is how you can identify envy in your life. This is how you can spot it. Anytime you mourn with those who rejoice, and you rejoice when others mourn. See how it flips upside down what the Bible teaches us? So the Bible says we should be a people. When others rejoice, we are there to rejoice with them. When others mourn, we are there to mourn with them. But envy robs that of us. Envy causes us to mourn when others rejoice. And so that other person in the workplace gets the promotion, right? And we, we are unable to rejoice with them over that. Instead, we mourn for ourselves. I think there's a couple ways uh, that, that we do this. Think about that person in your life that you are hypercritical of. You know, that person that, man, they do something and somebody else is like, oh, did you see that? That was great. And you're like, wasn't that great? I mean, really? If you'd have seen what they did the week before, I mean, you know. Oh, they say something, you know, you're in a Bible study maybe and they say something and somebody else is like, oh, man, I, I just loved it when they said that. And you're like, well, should have seen what they said on Facebook a couple weeks ago. Right? Think about this. Why are you always wishing to readjust people's view of that person? Why are you always so critical of what they do? Why does it kind of burn you up when things go well for them and they're rejoicing? That envy in your heart causes you to be unable to rejoice with them. You are mourning when they are rejoicing. Another way we do this is self-pity. You know, self-pity is kind of this, this way of seeing not just a specific person's circumstances are better than mine, everyone's circumstances are better than mine. And so anytime something good happens to the people around me, what does it cause me to do? It causes me to go farther into self-pity. It causes me to mourn myself and my circumstances further, and so I'm unable to rejoice with those who rejoice. We do this the other way. We rejoice when others mourn. I can tell you one way, I, you know, I saw this in my life, in my heart. You know, everyone has these people in your life who are just good at everything. You know these people? They're good at everything. They're talented, they're smart, they're successful. Everything they touch turns to gold, right? And you like them. You genuinely like them because they're so likable. You can't help but like them. You know, and then every once in a while, there's something they do that doesn't go quite their way. Isn't it like a little bit of a relief? You know what I mean? Like, it's a little comforting. Like, thank goodness. I thought they were some alien being that was so different from the rest of us. And you kind of get a little satisfaction from saying, welcome to the world for the rest of us, okay? And as if their, you know, little failure in some way kind of affirms my struggles and makes me feel better about where I am in my struggles. You see that? That's in all of our hearts. We're rejoicing when others are mourning. Somehow, someone's failure makes us feel better. That's envy. And y'all, little circumstances like that, again, we all do it, and so it's easy to think it is no big deal. But I'm telling you, it's a big deal. Envy is a thief, and it will steal everything from you, and I only need to give you one example to prove it. Just one. Exhibit A, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are in the garden. They have everything, and y'all, envy steals the garden from Adam and Eve. Think about it not a care in the world, completely peaceful, walking with God. They have everything, and a serpent walks up and says, you know, there's one thing you don't have. There's this little knowledge you don't have, and guess what? He has it. Can you believe that? 
He has it. He don't want you to have it. I think you better eat that fruit. Y'all, they had everything, and it wasn't enough. Can you imagine the regret they felt and the new perspective they had as they were being led out of that garden? What they wouldn't give to be back there. And yet when they were there, they had everything they needed. It wasn't enough. They needed more. This is how envy lies to us. It makes us think, oh, you really don't have something you should have, something you need. But y'all, when you and I were in the garden, we had it all. We still thought we needed more. That's what envy will do to you. So how do we fight it? How do we fight for perspective in our life? Well, we can learn some lessons for the psalmist. The first way we do it is this. We fight for perspective by looking outside ourselves. You fight for perspective by looking outside yourself. The psalmist is going to do this in two ways. First, he's going to look at his community of faith. In verse 15, it's this, this interesting turning point. He begins to notice the children of God. And y'all hear he's not talking about just little children. He's talking about his whole community of faith, God's people. He says, I considered them and I thought about them. And that was his first step to thinking outside of himself. And it's hard to know exactly what about his community of faith helped him make this turn. Maybe it's a little bit of accountability. And so he says, you know, if I had spoken thus, he's saying if I had spoken and acted out of my envy and my bitterness and all of my questions, you know what? The community of faith helped me realize I'm accountable a little bit. And my actions and my words would have destructive consequences. And so that gave him pause. That helped him pump the brakes a little bit. Maybe he saw other examples of faith that gave him some perspective. Maybe he saw other people that he could say, man, you know what? They have suffered. They've been through trials, and yet they're filled with joy and with faith. No matter what it was, somehow his community of faith helped him start to regain perspective because it helped him start to look outside himself. You know, this is a very important point because it's the exact opposite of what most of us do. Most of us, when we begin to have these questions, what do we do? We withdraw. We stop showing up here. We don't want to go to church. We don't want to be around God's people. And we just start looking farther, farther inside of ourselves. Isn't that what we do? There's a lot of reasons for this. Maybe we're embarrassed a little bit that we don't quite have our lives together. Embarrassed that we would have these kind of questions. Maybe it makes church not very fun anymore. You know, we don't quite get the warm fuzzies like we were. It's kind of, it feels like more of a chore, more like drudgery. You know, I think one of the reasons when we start to ask these questions that we withdraw from church, one of the reasons is because sometimes we make church a place where it's not okay to struggle. And, you know, that's not what church is. That's not what church is for. See, a lot of people come to church for all the wrong reasons. We come to church maybe to check something off the list. We come to church to, to keep developing our good reputation. We come to church just to be around some people who are just like us. We, we come to church to get some chill bumps and some good experiences. There's all kinds of reasons we can come to church. But y'all, that is not what church is for. Church is where you fight for perspective. Church is where you come with your questions that you need answers to. Church is where you come to learn the truth. That's what this place is for. That's why you come. I love people who come to church with questions. I love people who come to church struggling. You know why? Because they show up here with this kind of ain't nobody got time for that mentality, right? Look, I don't have time just 
just for small talk or just to do things out of habit. I've got questions and I need answers. I need the truth. I need the right perspective. And so if that's you this morning, I want you to know you came to the right place. That's what you come to church for. But you know what's interesting? As, as helpful is, as his community of faith is, it's still not enough. So in verse 16, he says, Still, though, when I, when I considered this, it was a wearisome task. You know, it's like when you're up all night and your mind's just going and you're not getting any answers, you're only getting more tired. You've been there? He said, man, I'm still in that. So it, it's, it's like it's enough to stop the bleeding, but not completely to turn things around. And so he, he fights for perspective by looking outside of himself first at the people of God and then at God himself. And so in verse 17, he says, until I went to the sanctuary of God. Well, where's the sanctuary of God? It's the place God dwells, which in the Old Testament was the temple. In the Old Testament, the temple served really two purposes. It was God's dwelling place, his sanctuary, is where, it was where God dwelled with man. And it was also meant to be a picture of who God is and who we are. It was meant to be a teacher to give everyone in the world the right perspective on who God is and who they are. So what would he have seen when he went to the temple? Well, one, he would have seen God's holiness. He would have seen this because he would have walked into this first gate and he'd been in this outer court, but that's not where God's presence was. He would have had to go through another gate and then another gate all the way to this one place called the Holy of Holies. And guess what? He couldn't go there. He was too sinful. In fact, only one person could go there, the high priest, only once a year, after a bunch of ritual cleansing, and even when he walked in, they had to tie a rope around his waist in case he dropped dead in God's presence, and that way they could pull him out of there. He saw God's holiness where sin and wickedness could not dwell. He said, you know what? These wicked, they think there's no consequences for their actions. They think they have the great life, but God is holy, and they will never be able to enter his presence. They will never be able to see him. They will never be able to know a holy God. That gave him some perspective. He saw God's beauty. The temple was huge, and it was meant to show God's bigness, his beauty, his majesty. Who would have seen this huge lampstand that would have been 75 pounds of pure gold? He would have seen these huge grapes that were bright, shining colors when everything else in the world around him was gray and brown. It was beautiful, meant to show God's beauty and majesty. And, you know, he'd say, man, these wicked, you know, they think they're all sleek and fat. They look pretty good. But guess what? Compared to God, they're nothing. God's beautiful. They would have seen, he would have seen God's perfection, his authority, and his power. So this whole temple was built exactly according to God's standards. And it was huge. A bunch of men didn't go up there just, hey, let's build it any way we want to. No, God commanded how it should look down to the slightest detail. And so he said, you know what? These wicked, they may walk around thinking, hey, we can do whatever we want and get away with it. There's no God. God's not seeing this. God's not hearing this. God's not knowing this. But he was gone to the temple and said, no, no, no. God has absolute power and absolute authority. So as he goes into this temple, he, he begins to pan out and he sees the wicked. Everything they boast about is nothing compared to God. So when we do this, when we get the right, when we fight for perspective and we see God as he is, our envy melts away. It can't stand next to it. 
There's one thing in particular he says that he found in the temple. And it's the next way we fight for perspective. We fight for perspective by keeping the end in mind. We fight for perspective by keeping the end in mind. So this is what he says in verse 17. He says, I saw their end. Y'all, I just went ahead and I flipped to the last chapter to see how this whole thing ends. And then I understood. In verse 18, he says, man, their life is slippery ground. It's a picture of being fragile, temporary, vulnerable, cannot last. I was reminded of a game we used to play when I went to summer camp as a kid. And I know many of you kids here have been going to camp this summer. It's an easy game, easy. There's a watermelon in the middle, a trash can on each end, two teams. And to win, all you got to do is take that watermelon and put it in your trash can. And not over and over again, just one time. That's all you got to do. One time, get the watermelon in your trash can, winner, winner, chicken dinner, okay? There's a little twist. So the watermelon was coated in Crisco. Really hard to pick up. And the playing field was a plastic tarp filled with soapy water. And so you'd bend down to pick up this greasy watermelon, and your feet would just start doing the ice skating thing, and there was no way you could even stand up with that thing. It was slippery. That is the life of the wicked. They're going to fall right down. And then I love this word picture he uses next. Verse 20. It says they're like a dream when one awakes. Think about when you take a nap. Maybe you take a 20-minute, you can take a 20-minute nap, and you can have this dream. And in the dream, it feels like a whole lifetime passes, right? I mean, you're a kid, and you grow up, and you like fly on an elephant to the moon and swim in rivers of chocolate, and all these crazy things can happen, right? But then you wake up, and you're like, oh, wait. Wait, in my dream, it seemed like a long time, but that was actually just a few minutes, wasn't it? And then what starts to happen? Even the memory of that dream fades just like that. It goes away, doesn't it? He's saying this is the life of the wicked. They think it's a long time now. They think it's a big deal now. But after you wake, man, that dream, you realize it was just a flash and the memory just fades. It goes away. It's fragile. It's slippery. It disappears. And so the psalm is saying, hey, I went to the temple and I realized the end. He's saying, oh, I get it. I understand. All these people taking such pride in their beauty and even before they die, their beauty is going to go away. By the time they die, if not earlier, all this wealth they boast in, they're going to lose it all. It's going to be gone. They're walking around all prideful, all boastful about their reputation. But listen, five minutes after they die, just like five minutes after you wake up from a dream, people are going to be like, wait, who is that? Uh, That guy? What guy? I don't know who you're talking about. Oh, yeah, I don't know. That's their life. So verse 22, he, he says, you know what? When I was zoomed in so close on my life, and I lost perspective because, God, I was brutish and I was arrogant towards you. I was like a beast. I was like an animal. Now think about an animal, y'all. An animal can only respond to what's right in front of them, right? If you've ever had a dog, this is why you can't come up to your dog and say, okay, uh, I'm going to leave for three hours, Rufus, and I'll be back at five o'clock. And your dog say, okay, that sounds reasonable. Have a good day. No, what happens with your dog? You start to leave, and he starts whimpering and whining and pitching a fit. Why? Because all that dog knows is you're leaving. That's all he can process. It's what's happening right here, right now. And then it's really fun when you come back, 
You walk in the door, man, he's jumping up and down. He's licking you. He's wagging his tail. He's so excited because all he can think is, you're here, you're here, you're here. Even though you come home at the exact same time every day, right? Why? Because he's just responding to what's right in front of his face. The psalmist is saying, when we lose perspective, this is what we are. We're just responding to what's right in front of our face. The biblical picture is Esau. Remember Esau? Went out, you know, for a long hunt, comes home hungry, tired. He's got his little brother there. He's got his big, nice cup of soup. You know, I'm sure Jacob was fanning the aroma over to him. Hey, smells pretty good, right? Esau, being the firstborn, was entitled the entire birthrights, the entire inheritance of his father. But in that moment, all he could think was, I'm hungry, there's soup. Tell you what, I'll give you my whole inheritance for that bowl of soup. And he sold it all for a cup of soup because he lost perspective. That's the picture. So we fight by keeping the end in mind. The last way we fight, we fight for perspective by living for the right reward. By living for the right reward. Verse 23 turns attention to God and he says, you know what? Forget the wicked God. I see how good you are to me. He says, you grab me, you guide me, and you lead me to glory. Grab, guide, glory. When I was about to slip, I realized now, God, when I was brutish and arrogant towards you, you reached out your hand and you grabbed me. You guide me through this life and you'll deliver me to glory. He's saying, God, you will ultimately deliver all that you have promised to me. It's this picture of the Christian life. Salvation, sanctification, glorification. God, you saved me. You guided me through this life. You'll bring me to glory. And then verse 25, y'all, this is the key verse. This is the key verse of the whole psalm right here. He asks a question, and then he answers it. He asks a question, and he answers it. He says, who do I have in heaven but you? What do I desire on earth beside you? And then he calls God his portion. Your portion, this is inheritance language. Your portion is that which you rightfully inherit. So if your grandfather dies, you go read the will, and it says, you know, I'll leave to Clint my pickup truck. That pickup truck is my portion. It is that part that is rightfully mine. It is like a reward. And notice, notice what he says. He's saying, you know, my portion, my reward, my inheritance, it's not something, it's someone. Right? Yo, this is amazing. This is astonishing. Don't miss this. The psalmist is not saying, yeah, the wicked prosper, they get all they want, they get the good reputation, they get to be beautiful, they get all the wealth, but ha-ha, God's like some cosmic Robin Hood. He's going to take it from you and give it to me. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, I have a better reward. He's saying the wicked get all that stuff, but guess what? I get God. I don't want that stuff anymore. A few years ago, there was a, a reality show called Joe Millionaire. It's one of these dating shows, you know, there's an eligible bachelor, about a dozen women, and each week somebody gets eliminated until there's one left. They see if they're going to get married. But there was a little twist on this one. The twist was they told all the women that this guy was filthy rich, that he was the son of some mogul. He wasn't filthy rich, y'all. He was this blue-collar construction worker, barely had two nickels to rub together. So they go through the show, everyone's eliminated, there's one woman left, he asks her to marry him, she says yes, they're all happy, except on the same day, they then go tell this woman, actually, he's not rich. Well, you know what happened, right? There's no wedding. That relationship was over. 
How would you have felt if that was you? Let's say you are rich and you are engaged. And all of a sudden, one day you lose it all. Maybe the stock market crumbles, business crumbles, whatever it is. And that same day, your fiance comes to you and says, you know what? I don't love you anymore. I don't want to marry you anymore. How do you feel about that? What does that tell you about the motivations of your fiance? Did she want you or did she want your stuff? Did she love you for you or did she love you for your stuff? Men and women, do you want God or do you want his stuff? Do you love God for who he is or do you love God for his stuff? See, all of our envy betrays our idolatry. It betrays the fact that we think God isn't enough. We want something different. We want something more. And the psalmist is telling you this morning, you can get it all. You can get the wealthy life, the perfect life, the well-manicured life, all the success you could ever dream of. You can get it and you lose. And I win because I get him. I get the better reward. Notice, nothing, no circumstances in this guy's life have changed. No, No circumstances have changed. As far as we know, the wicked are still prospering. He is still suffering, and yet his heart is totally changed. You're sitting here this morning. You have to ask yourself, what could he experience? He thought he needed a change of circumstances, but that didn't change his heart. What what could have changed his heart? I think there's one more thing he would have experienced in the temple. He would have experienced the sacrificial system. He would have seen, yes, this is the place where God has decided to dwell with man, but for that to happen, there's a lot of death going on over here. When he walked in, there would have been so much blood, he could have smelled it. They say back then there were so many animals being sacrificed for for the forgiveness of the people's sins, there was literally a river of blood going through it. So he would have smelled the blood. He would have heard the cries of the animals. And he'd say, you know what? I was like a beast. I acted like a beast, and so that should be me, and yet those beasts are paying the price for my sin. Of course, we know the price for our sin was ultimately paid on the cross. So men and women, if you want to live a wise life, if you want perspective, look at the cross. Talk about a time for envy, right? Jesus is up there, and he could very easily say, wait a minute, I was perfect, but I'm dying right now. You're not. You're all sinful, and you're not dying right now. Wait, wait, wait. My delight was to do the Father's will, but it feels like I'm being forsaken by the Father. None of you are being forsaken by the Father, but I am. And I was perfect. But you know what? There was not a hint of envy on the cross. You know what kept Jesus on the cross? The Bible says, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. Here's what It's like Jesus was saying, you know what? Forget about all that other stuff. In fact, Satan had already offered him the entire earth, bonus, you don't have to die on the cross. And he said, no, I don't want any of that. You can keep all of that. I want you. I want you. That's what I want. So a wise person, women, looks at the cross. He looks what God has done to make a way to dwell with man. He says, you know what? Forget about being sleek and fat, having an easy life, having a good reputation. If the God of the universe is willing to do that for me, then you know what? I want him. I want him. And guess what? You win. 
You get them for eternity. You get back to the garden. You have it all. So fight for perspective in your life. You know what? Maybe you're here this morning and you identify with these questions. You're, you came here struggling because, you know what? Life is hard and the world's unfair. That's you. I want you to know you're in the right place. I encourage you, fight by looking outside yourself, realize the end of this world, and live for the right reward. Don't let envy set in. Look at the perspective of the cross. You know what? Maybe you're here this morning and you've been coming to church for a long time. But for you, it's just been a way to maybe get what some other people in the world have. A nice reputation, make your life work, kind of the, your best life you can have now. But maybe this morning you're realizing for the first time, you know what? It's not about all this stuff. There's actually a greater reward. And that's what I want. That's you this morning. And you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ. We'd love to talk to you. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.